Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Peter Van Doren, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Editor of Regulation Magazine. Welcome back to the show, Peter. I'm back a little more quickly than we probably planned. <laughs> well, I when think. we need to get an energy expert, I mean, you are Cato's resident energy. I mean, so many things, but uh, we have never a, not a good time to have PVD on the show. And that too, of course. And we had this whole kerfuffle in Texas with Texas's energy supply. So before we totally get into the nitty gritty of that, can you give us a general overview of grids, electric grids and, and how they generally work uh, so then we can get into how they would break. So electricity systems have three components of generation, which are power plants, uh, natural gas fired or nuclear power or coal or wind or solar uh, or hydro. And those power plants are then connected to a long, a very high voltage, long distance transmission system uh, where, and the reason it's very high voltage is because the power loss uh, is very low at very high voltages. And so the uh, efficiency of the system is maintained by having such high voltages. And then at the point of a local distribution system, the voltages step down a, a number of times to, to where we get it to be the 240 volt or 120 volt uh, electricity that we have at our houses. So we have generation, transmission, and distribution. But what about the... Uh pricing structure of that and the and the regulation of that well that's what I was, historically all three components were owned by one entity and those were called vertically integrated utility companies and then in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, some states embarked on in effect chopping that vertically integrated system up into uh, basically three components uh, again the distribution, uh, the traditional local utility and long distance transmission and generation. The, the thought was that the provision of transmission and uh, distribution were probably what economists call natural monopolies. That is, you don't have, it's, it's, it's unlikely to have uh, the possibility of parallel distribution systems and parallel transmission systems owned by different companies that compete. Although we could have a, a little parentheses discussion that in some places that actually exists at the distribution level. But generation, it were thought to be uh, that competition was possible. And thus, if we divested the generators from the vertically integrated utilities, they could operate at, on their own and compete with each other. And then uh, put bids into an auction market, and then an, a, a runner of the auction could add up the bids and sort of find the uh, the set of bids that, quote, clear the market so that uh, the supply of electricity equals demand. And those suppliers that bid too much would not be paid. Right? So, so, and that, so circa late 90s, early 2000s, some states, including Texas, uh, and Texas aggressively embarked on this separation of generation into a competitive market, and uh, but transmission and uh, distribution remain under monopoly regulation, just like the old days. So this sounds like it complicates a bit of the story that we were hearing, or at least a, 
a bit of the tweeting that we were hearing as Texas was having its power failures, which was on the one hand, people saying this shows that government not monopolies don't work. On the other hand, people saying this shows that free markets and electricity don't work, that we've got both. Is it is this balance of it correct? Like is there could we get away with a free market in in the distribution as well or are there good reasons why we want at least we want a monopoly there? Well, again, the question is if you de- deregulated entry into transmission and distribution, what would occur? Well, there's lots and lots and lots of infrastructure that would have to be laid and at the distribution level, some of the concern at the local level is not only economics, but also aesthetics. Uh, if people remember when fiber optic cable was first put into the District of Columbia, do you remember the street that runs in front of Cato and it kept being dug up and dug up and more and more fiber got laid down? And finally, the district said, look, we, we're just going to have one you know, corridor uh, and the fiber that's laid down is done. We're just not going to keep opening streets up every time somebody wants to to lay down more fiber optic cable. So some of the there's an analogous concern uh, when it comes to the ownership of the poles and the and then would you have wires you know overhead and who would have access to the wires and so so those concerns plus the the sort of natural monopoly characteristics which is it's not clear anyone would enter, right? I mean, the, the the only way to make money through distribution and transmission is there's there, it's just fixed costs. It's almost all fixed and no marginal. And so then you'd have t- two competing sets of fixed costs, one of which was utilized and one of which was new and empty, and both of which would have the same pricing structures. And so why would anyone opt to use the new infrastructure whose costs were probably the same or maybe more than because they were newer and not depreciated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, I mean, you're, I'm, my answer is probably too long, but you said if is the notion that transmission and distribution are monopolies, natural monopolies, and while, while uh, generation is not, is that probably um, correct? And I, I think the answer is yes. Now, in terms of pricing, just this is a, I guess this is a big picture public utilities question. But if you do have, I mean, mean, if you're the power company in Virginia, in my house in Virginia, I don't have a choice about competing power companies. So it seems like you could absolutely kind of just take me to, you know, take me to the bank in terms of charging whatever you want uh, because there's no competitive you know, pressure from a competitor. There's, it's very hard to get into the market, as you said. So like, what is the general thing that we've set up to make that not happen? Well, in your state, Virginia, actually, uh, they started down the deregulatory path. They passed legislation actually in the early 2000s, but then the so-called California debacle hit in 2001, 2002. And ever since then, because the, the quote, California experiment melted down as well, that froze states' efforts at that point in time. And in fact, Virginia then retreated. It it went backwards. It repealed the statute that was going to lead to, de- to 
generator deregulation, and it went back to the traditional model. So Virginia has traditional vertically integrated utilities with uh, that are regulated by a state public service commission where the utility submits data on its costs and then the commission sets tariffs and then that is the rate for electricity a different one for residential and commercial and industrial and the and and those rates are fixed by the commission the look at the profits every year of Dominion Energy the company in Virginia and they then assess whether that the rate of return that that company made was too high or too low relative to the rate of return that the commission determined would be an appropriate return given the cost of capital that the utility faced. So if you own a utility, like if you own Dominion or you're one of the profit shares in that, it seems like you're sitting pretty and to some extent. You don't have competitive pressure. There's a commission that sets things back and forth. So in terms of feeling pretty, you know, confident about not losing your job or not losing your business, uh, you're, you, you probably are pretty, feel pretty risk-free. Yes. I mean, I wrote an article, oh goodness, more than 20 years ago. Uh, it's actually an internal debate at Cato, which is what, if we deregulated, what uh, do we owe the utilities once we change the rules and then the market value of their assets changes given that they're not protected anymore, right? And I said, well, the utilities claim that their their return ought to equal the return on the S&P 500. But then I said, but the people, but the companies in the S&P 500 face risk. Whereas if you're a, a rate regulated utility, you really don't. So one, so yes, the, the, the rate of return on regulated utilities has always been more or less like the S&P 500, even though those assets don't face the risk that most of the assets in the S&P 500 do. And I think, at least I argued at the time, that one should treat those kinds of assets more like bonds rather than stocks, and that the appropriate rate of return on capital actually um, would be lower um, than the S&P 500. Do these companies, so say Dominion Power that we have in Virginia, it seems like every year or so something happens where everyone gets really mad at them for something. That like power goes down for a while or whatever, but we're we're mad at Dominion for a while, but then Dominion is still our energy provider. And and they've built all of this infrastructure. Do those companies ever get kicked out? Like is there a mechanism by which so as Trevor was saying, they they're it feels pretty risk free, but do they ever say like, look, you've you've messed it up enough that we're going to bring another company in to take over? Well, technically, they operate under a franchise uh, granted by this, the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so, yes, that franchise could be revoked, but all the physical assets would remain. You just basically would have a different – I mean, you could revoke the, the, the charter. You would then give it to some other entity, probably just another out-of-state vertically integrated power company. And then those executives would then run the same system under a rate of return regulation. And then one would see whether or not the performance did or did not get better. We actually had something like that in Maryland. Um, uh, the Again, the transmission and, and distribution assets, even in deregulated states like Maryland, those are still monopolies in, in Maryland. They Those assets of PEPCO, uh, were 
the, the local Washington, D.C. power company, were purchased by a company called Exelon. And it turns out Exelon does have a better maintenance record. I mean, the big, the big issue for uh, the distribution and transmission systems is do they maintain the trees? Do they cut the trees down so that during storms, limbs don't cut down or, you know, fall onto the local distribution system and lock the power out? For the, for the transmission system, the issue is whether the trees are cut enough in the transmission corridor so that sagging transmission lines in the summer don't contact tall trees and then arc out and then short the system. Uh, the the big blackout in the Northeast, what was that, 2001 or two or three, somewhere in there, maybe 2003? That blackout was caused by sagging transmission lines in Ohio touching trees in the transmission corridor and then arcing out and shutting off power basically to what 50 million people in you know 12 states or something like that and so yes the tree management is actually the biggest issue uh for local distribution systems and that's what prevents power outages during storms is making sure that tree limbs and trees don't aren't overshadowing the local distribution line so that when the ice or the winds hit that everything doesn't fall down so in that sort of broader picture, how has Texas set up its power system and how is it a little bit different than the other states? Well, Texas is the of, of the deregulated states. Texas is the most radical in two ways, uh, which are separate, actually. One predates the deregulation and that's Texas does not have alternating current connections to any other state. Texas is isolated. There are three transmission systems in the U.S., the so-called Western Interconnection, the Eastern Interconnection, and Texas. Texas is isolated from the other two. It only has direct current connections, and those are very small. So Texas has to, the supply and demand of electricity has to balance within Texas itself, and it cannot call on, during emergencies, it cannot call on resources anywhere in the rest of the United States. So it is isolated. Can you quickly just explain what you mean by alternating and direct current and, and why they're different and why they have to be balanced? One has to be balanced this way. Okay. The uh, power in uh, all U.S. households is what's called 60 hertz, 60 cycles per second alternating current. So if we had a picture, it would look like a sine wave where the zero was no voltage and then it, it goes up and down in a sine wave way 60 times a second. And in an alternating current system, it's best to think of uh, the relationship between consumers and generators as one big system. It's one gigantic machine in which the frequency of everybody at all times, at all generators and all consumers and all motors and all lights has to be 60 cycles per second. Any loss of generation capacity in that system results in what's called frequency degradation, right? That the, the cycles per second start to sag below 60. And that places increased uh, load on the remaining generators and they start to work harder and then they can't spin at 60 cycles per second. And then if this is not remedied quickly in real time through emergency generation procedures or 
what's called shedding load, i.e. blackouts, then the whole system will crash and we need what's called a black startup, which is every generator would then trigger and it shut itself off because of the imbalance in cycles per second. And it would take weeks to restart every generator and uh, get the system back up. And when ERCOT, you probably read in the press or listeners have heard that ERCOT, the manager of the uh, just the transmission system in Texas, defends itself by saying if they had not intentionally blacked out the parts of Texas that they did, the whole Texas system would have collapsed and we would still, everyone in Texas would still be without power uh, today. You said uh, deregulated, which is a loaded word around Cato. Um, you said that Texas is deregulated, but I mean, it's not a free market system. I mean, there's well, it's it's and, as close as you get. I mean, it is remarkably close. Uh, I mean, not on not on the, the distribution generate in the sense of generation. Okay, uh, the, so the generation, so people can build a power plant and compete for contracts to put power into the system for distribution correct. to homes. Okay. Correct. And, and Texas is the only U S system that has what are not what are called. It has no capacity system, no capacity requirements. That is, there's no regulatory directive about how much supply has to equal equal or exceed peak demand in the previous year, usually in the summer, although in this recent cold snap in Texas, for the first time ever, winter demand got very close to summer peak. Um, Texas does not have any rules about that there have to be so many extra generators hanging around in case bad things happen. And, And that's all other states do that even the market-oriented states like Maryland and New England and New York. Uh, we have, uh, have deregulated generation systems, but we also have what are called capacity requirements added on on top of all of that. So these are these are extra, you said, because one thing about power generation, which I think is important if I'm correct here, uh, I mean, power in this sense can't really be stored effectively. So you have to have the real-time generation capacity to basically turn on new generators. And that's what you're talking about, that there'd be requirements of how many generators you kind of have to, because you can't, you can't put the, the electricity into a reservoir like you do with water. Uh, There are batteries, but they don't really work as well. So, so this is a requirement of some percentage of the grid in order to accommodate these kind of shocks that come from state regulators or maybe federal regulators. So you're saying Texas has none of that. So how do they deal with that? Correct. They deal with it only through prices that rise in real time as supply gets very close to current demand. And then the system, in effect, as the shortage becomes more obvious, the, in effect, in the auction markets, the prices of, the price of power gets bid up. Um, and it, 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 as I said in my, what I've written about the Texas system, normally Texas averages kind of five cents a kilowatt hour. Um, in the recent episode they went through, it was nine dollars a kilowatt hour, <laughs> not, not five cents. And that price and the profits that result from that high price alone 
are supposed to induce enough generators to exist in the hope that they will get those kind of what economists call rents, those very, very those prices that are very much greater than marginal cost. It's the it's the hope of those profits alone that Texas relies on uh, to induce enough supply to exist in bad times. So this seems, uh, especially if I'm I'm putting on my like pro regulation hat, this seems crazy. <laughs> and well, and, if you saw the news coverage this week, so when people said Texas is crazy, they didn't mean that generation was deregulated per se, because many states have that. But what Texas is, how Texas is different is that they rely only on prices to get everything to work, uh, which is pretty, 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 um, given that, as Trevor just said earlier, right, this is, this market's unique because there's no inventory. You can't store electricity easily. You, there's something called pump, pump storage hydro, which is you pump water up at night when power's cheap and you let it go downhill in the daytime, right, for peak demand in the summer. So Texas actually has some of that. And there's some of that in the Northeast where there's mountains and you can store water. But that doesn't last very long, right? These, these are not pump storage hydro is meant for peak demand in the summer for a few hours. It's not meant to be a backup source for days like what we just saw. So let me just talk through how I am understanding this to see because it sounds like kind of exactly the sort of setup that is built to make people think markets are the worst solution to this kind of thing. So we've got We've got a bunch of companies competing to supply power, but they can't they can't store it. So they have to essentially guess how much power is going to be needed by the people of Texas at any given time and produce as close to exactly that as they can manage. Um, they've not they've been they have not been required to bring on backup generators in case there is a power spike. Um, and generators you could build a bunch of backup generators but if they just sit unused then that's like probably significant capital costs that you may never see a return on investment on and so there's a little bit of a playing the risk right of guessing because as you said if the price so then if there's a spike the price is going to go up but even if that price goes up by a thousand percent it's not going to bring you can't install generators fast enough to to like up the amount of power that's available. That's it. so the generators have to have been built in, you know, long before this in anticipation. But then you're asking the companies to weigh the risks of basically it's going to cost me x number of dollars to install generators that may not ever get used or maybe get used once every 100 years. And so I have a cost times a kind of probability of recuperating that cost versus there may be a huge event that spikes the price, but then I have to guess whether the money I'm going to make from that spiked price is going to equal or hopefully exceed the money I would have put into building the generators you know, to meet that extra need. So this seems to be pushing a really critical thing, namely – the power of, you know, the ability of people in Texas to have power to heat their homes and turn on their lights entirely in the hands of companies wagering 
profits against, in this case, what a cold snap that was the first time in 120 years or something. So longer than a lot of these companies have even been around. This just seems, is it really that kind of nonsensical? Because I'm looking at this and it's like, it seems like, well, it just the obvious solution would be to say you have to have a bunch of backup or for the state to pay for a bunch of backup. Um, first, I want to honor uh, Aaron for he's now an honorary member of the Center for American Progress. And <laughs> I mean, it, you have exactly stated what has been repeated in the last week and a half, over and over and over and over and over again. By so, um, I'll push back slightly, um, and in the following way, the. Analysts have predicted that the Texas system could never work ever since it was first created 20 years ago. And yet, except for two instances, one in 2011 and one last week, it has worked in the sense that there is the, but the that's what's called the capacity margin, right? The excess capacity in the Texas system above and beyond last summer's peak has basically been in the kind of 8 to 12% range. Whereas in the Northeast, we're in the high 20s. Okay, so it's certainly fair to say that the backup stuff in the, in the Texas system, the backup generation capacity, is the lowest in the country. But it is not absurdly low. And in fact, I've in the a paper I've written, a little blog post I've written, I dug around in papers and said, up until this week, when the 30% in the Northeast looks like a good deal, academic criticism of the capacity markets outside of Texas has been intense because everyone argued the capacity was way too high and resulted in excess costs for consumers all the time, as you correctly stated that it's just lying around, it's never used, and people get sick of paying for that in their average rates. The capacity market design in the deregulated states that have them, their intention is to have capacity about in the 15% range. And yet in actuality, they have capacity almost double that. So if Texas, so here's my pushback intellectually against the Center for American Progress view, which is, okay, yeah, have a Texas capacity requirement. And, but guess what? Where states that have those requirements, they only say 15%. And the loss of generation capacity in Texas was so large. I initially thought it was somewhere around a third, but the latest I've read, believe it or not, is that it may be, have been at its peak more than half, 52,000 megawatts out of an 80 some odd thousand megawatt system was probably offline at, at the worst part of the debacle in Texas. So there, so, so no that doesn't exist. So there's like not a power system that exists that would be, exists, I mean, unless you had an absurd exactly. capacity requirements of more than 50%. Well, no one had, that's what I'm saying. A well-run capacity system up until this point was thought to be 15. And to be sure the Northeast has more than that, but academics have criticized the organization of those capacity markets for defects that they have said have led to excessive capacity. Now, 
No one's going to write a paper like that in the next few months, I suspect. But I found a paper saying it before we know what happened to Texas. And now the question is, I mean, there's just trade-offs, which is you run Monte, you know, you, you, both Aaron and Trevor, you said it well, which is you could run these Monte Carlo simulations of, all right, now and then stuff happens. And then the question is, does it pass a cost-benefit test? How, how worried about rare events should you be? And there have been studies that do that, and they try to value what's called loss of load, how valuable are kilowatt hours to customers. And Texas actually ran such an exercise. They found, they found that residential customers appear only willing to pay about what they pay retail, which is an 11 cents an hour kind of for, per kilowatt hour. So, you know, right now people would say they would be willing to pay more than that. But uh, notice the people in Texas who received wholesale prices, which were very high, which led to power bills that are in the thousands of dollars because of last week. All of those people say that, no, they're not willing to pay that much to keep up the grid. And yet it was that extreme money that kept whatever part of the Texas grid kept going. I thought it was two thirds. Now it may be less than half. And those generators made a ton of money last week um, in Texas because they were running. So maybe people will, like the, those are some, those are why you get into that business, right? I mean, if you can bid into the auction market for excess capacity, and then occasionally every ten years you make, you know, ten times what you made. I mean, more than oh, that, you said a gazillion, it went to nine, a gazillion, yeah, t- yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then you say, well, you know, my company exists for these black swan events. I'm going to start a company. And, you know, we'll, we'll run it like maybe even, you know, do some stuff, but every 10 or 20 years we'll be there and we'll make a ton of money. Um, but it seems a viable business model. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, here in DC coming from Denver, you know, maybe three to five times in the 10 years I've been here, we've had pretty significant snowstorms. I wasn't here for a snowpocalypse. You and Aaron were, but, uh, the, so two feet or more, and we just don't have the snow removal capacity for that two foot snowstorm like Denver does. I I think that they bring in snow removal stuff from West Virginia. Uh, And it would be pretty irrational if we had that many snowplows sitting around uh, rusting in lots for the every five year, two foot snowstorm. Um, So the interesting question is here with both, you know, snow removal, other things where black swan events or or relatively rare events make a big difference uh, is it it seems like an inherent problem that neither governments nor nor economic free market economic systems are are able to deal with very well. It's um, I'll add one more, just one more. I think your snowplow analogy is is quite telling and listeners ought to be able to relate to that. you know, having uh, well, pandemics, right? I mean, how how often has the U.S. dealt with large pandemics and it ought to have a kind of robust vaccine supply system? And, and, and woo. Well, we're facing all that. Same thing with snowplows, same thing with electricity. Electricity is slightly different in the following way. It's Texas did have excess capacity, i.e. 12% above last summer's peak demand, okay? The problem was that all the generators that did exist couldn't operate. 
right? They froze, they froze, they were what's called inadequately winterized. And I spent some time trying to figure out what that meant. I did not know. Basically, most of the guts of Texas generators are outdoors. They're not enclosed in buildings. <laughs> and I said, what? And then I read some reports and turns out Texas is hot. <laughs> so if they put all this stuff indoors, they'd have to deal with getting rid of the heat in the summer from generators and systems and steam turbines and all of that. And that would require air, right? And they don't want to do that. And so it's all outdoors. So then how can you make something that's outdoors deal with a temperature of six degrees Fahrenheit? And the answer is you have to put antifreeze in the water systems and you have to use heat tape around exposed stuff that needs to be warm. And it turns out that mostly seems to not have been done by generators in Texas. And it, and that repeat, I mean, the 89 storm was cold, the 2011, and now this one, those are the three worst. But Texas has had below freezing events before and generators go out, not as many, and they fail to winterize. And so the, what I'm, uh, I would like to see somewhere, somebody write a paper on the cost benefit calculations that the generators went through. What it, it, I don't know whether it passes a cost benefit test or not, but because they weren't operational, they lost out on a lot of money and they've made a lot of customers mad. And, and so, but the fact that they've done this more than once suggests, I don't know what it suggests. I mean, I, I, I'll leave it as a puzzle, but. So it's not just that you need excess capacity. You need generators that actually can run in weather situations that don't occur very frequently, but but not as infrequently as one imagines in Texas. Bad weather events tend to be localized, at least from you know the national level. Like we don't we don't tend to get an enormous blizzard across the entire continental United States. It's in, you know, a region in it and then maybe in one state it's hit particularly hard and it seems like a solution to that you know like i can buy there are manufacturers of foodstuffs all over the country and i can buy my food from them and because we have this national highway system that interconnects all of them and so if food product producers in one part of the country get hit really hard that country that part of the country doesn't starve because food can be shipped in from elsewhere electricity moves a whole lot faster than big rig trucks so why can't we just wouldn't a solution to this be to have a national power grid so that if texas the texas manufacturers of electricity hit a snag we can just pump power in from anywhere else in the country that is also what many of the critics of the Texas system have argued this past week and a half. And again, as we said earlier, Texas has uh, two unique feet. First, they're deregulated in the way uh, that other states are. But two, they don't have capacity markets, which we just talked about. But third, they don't have interstate alternating current connections to anywhere else in the United States. And that is to avoid, intentionally to avoid federal regulation. Texas is a big state. I mean, it's a big market. So I, I kind of looked up the data and the question is how undiversified is Texas because it's isolated? 
And the answer is it's sort of in the middle of the pack. I mean, they're the PJM system in Maryland and New Jersey, uh, which actually goes all the way to Illinois. It was originally just this part of the Northeast, but it's now much, much bigger. Uh, that has, you know, kind of 150 million uh, gigawatts or sorry, 150 gigawatt peak demand in the summer. Texas is in the kind of high 70s, low 80s. Uh, and then, but New York is, you know, half of the size of Texas. So systems vary as to how big they are. Even in the Eastern interconnection, which is sort of everybody is interconnected, the links between what used to be called local utility areas, they exist, but they're not that thick. So, th so the notion that power plants in Ohio can be called up to solve something that's going on in Maine is sort of technically true, but not as robust as, as your initial question was indicating. So we'd have to actually measure. I mean, there are places where I could go find how big the alternating current connections are between the various parts of the Northeast. So it's sort of one big system, and yet it's really not. It's a bunch of segmented systems with connections between them. Texas has no connection. So that so the issue is, if it were connected to Louisiana and Oklahoma, which also were cold, by the way, the, the, we'll find out eventually when the report is issued how much power generation capacity was available in nearby states that also were cold and also faced large demand, and how much of it had Texas had connections, would have been available to kind of help bail Texas out. Um, so you asked the correct question, but we don't yet know the answer. And I want to push back a bit in that the eastern and western interconnections aren't actually as much connected as you implied um, in your initial, in your question. It seems that there's a backstory to this, which is related to a lesson that that you have taught me and us and listeners of free thoughts over the years, which is that a lot of times when free markets work correctly, people don't like how they work. So they're, they're actually, they're opposed to a well-functioning market. And when it's it comes to electricity, <laughs> well, people that was don't like $9 a kilowatt hour. That's Pre precisely. Sure. <laughs> and that's the interesting backstop is, the, is that we, we in the Western world take electricity for granted so much that we essentially expect to pay, you know, comparatively a pittance for it. Uh, and when the price goes up and down due to actual supply constraints and, and changes in demand, both of those at the same time, uh, you would say, well, you know, then you're going to have to pay, but we don't want to do that. We want to say, I should be able to turn anything off. And if you think about it, like, and there are countries where intermittent power is a reality, I mean, it's just a fact of life. And those people might have an understanding of the value, costs and value of electricity because, I mean, the consumer surplus for electricity at the rates that we pay has got to be massive. I mean, if I if you think about how important well, electricity is to the world. Well, that's what we talked about. Yeah. That's what, remember I said that Texas had done this loss of load study, right? Just what, what, what's people's willingness to pay to avoid blackouts? And for c commercial and industrial customers, it's very large. I mean, they actually uh, are willing to pay in the six to nine dollar a kilowatt hour range. Ironically, they also have their own backup. Often have their own backup power systems, 
and they have what are called interruptible contracts with the grid. In other words, they receive a low price of power from the grid because the grid can turn them off during emergencies. Texas did that. Texas has a bunch of interruptible customers. They're just mostly not residential. And even that shedding all those customers in a market-like way for by contract, that wasn't enough to get demand down enough to equal the supply that existed. But it's much rarer for residential customers to be willing to be interrupted. Um, sometimes in the summer, though, I was part of a system here in Maryland where I signed up for a, a, a lower price in return for air conditioner cycling during a, a peak demand problem. And you can do that. People, uh, that's available almost everywhere, and people do that. And then, but it's the, a select kind of people, right? The people that are, they have knowledge, they know what's going on. And, and it's not that they're cut off, they're just cycled. Whereas in Texas, what happened is the cycling and, and, and the interruptible contracts weren't enough. They actually had to cut off people to thought, who thought they had total reliable fixed price you know, contract power. Yeah, that, that, that was just because of the, the massive failure of, of power generation. But it's, it is interesting, though, because, you know, if, if you survey someone, I feel like this is a good example of kind of talk is cheap, you know, one of the most important economic concepts, because I feel like, you know, maybe you go and you do a survey on excess capacity in Texas and you say, how much are you willing to pay for electricity? But people might be thinking, oh, well, you know, this, the electricity company, you know, it's easy to, generate power. They're just trying to, you know, take me for more money or something. But if you were put into a situation and you didn't have electricity for a while and you said, how much is refrigeration worth to you? I think it's worth a lot. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, maybe, no, nine, people, maybe $9 a kilowatt hour, right? Like, I mean, up to that level, like, like it's worth a lot. Except here's the weird. So think of there are people in Texas, we've seen the pictures. So there are people who lost power and then they had water line breaks in their house and then they I mean, they're, they're suffering enormous damages from this. Um, and then, right, that company, Giddy, that had uh, wholesale prices plus $9.99 a month. That was their retail model. And they had 29,000 customers. And all those customers are getting large bills. And they're, you know what, they're, I don't know what words we can use on the pub, but they are not happy. And the governor of Texas says, who's, strident Republican and all that. He's saying, this is highway robbery. I mean, no one is defending markets right now, except good old Bill Hogan from Harvard, right? He's the guru of, of electricity deregulatory design. He helped design the Texas system. And he said it worked. It worked the way it was supposed to, i.e. high prices is, are trying to restrain demand and generate supply. But... It meant that somewhere around a half of customers didn't have power. So when people say they wanted an electricity system to work well, they don't mean it in a Bill Hogan kind of way. They mean, I want low prices all the time and power all the time, and I don't want to have to worry about anything, full stop. And that's tough. <laughs> that's, that's hard to organize. So given the, the story that you've told us today of of how this works and what went wrong and given how damaging this turned out to be for the people of Texas and you know so we in an ideal world would not have something like this occur again 
And given how many people, including our friends at the Center for American Progress, are kicking around policy solutions to all of this, from a public policy perspective, what, if anything, should we do or can we do to try to make it so that the next time Texas gets hit by weather like this, it doesn't end up being as much of a problem? I guess for me, the the biggest, or I think the most, the cheapest way to to resolve this and create stability for the future is to have a much more engineering and cost-benefit discussion of what's called winterization of both the electric generation system. I, the fact they use lots of water, not only that, you know, I found out by deep reading that a lot of the sensors that these power plants use are based on Venturi tubes that have standing water in them and the water froze. And then that trips a circuit that says the plant has to go offline, not because the plant couldn't run, but because its sensors couldn't tell it enough. And the sensors are water-based. Okay. Is there another, you know, so there's lots of little Mr. Fix-It kind of things of the winterization sword, I think, that probably pass a cost-benefit test and wouldn't lead to extraordinary uh, average cost increases because, yes, they're lying around most of the time, but we're talking heat tape and antifreeze. So if, if I read correctly, again, I could be wrong. But So that's possibility number one. And the mystery is how come so many generators don't seem to do it? I, I, I don't know. Uh, the second thing has to do with the natural gas system. Uh, in the in the writing I've done, I said one possibility that is you you see allusion to it in the media, which is the power plants were ready and up and could run, but their natural gas supply was cut. So then you go, well, what makes natural gas systems cut? And the answer is, there's water in natural gas as it comes up from deep under the earth. That water can freeze if at the wellhead you don't have ways to, in effect. Uh, heat the output of the well enough so that the water doesn't freeze. Even if you do that, there's water stored at all natural gas wellheads because water is a byproduct of natural gas production. The water is stored in containers and then has to be checked and monitored and drained every so often by technicians. In a snowstorm, it turns out they couldn't get there and then an automatic circuit trips off the natural gas supply because the water tank hasn't been emptied again. So to me, that sounds like not rocket science, but just sort of simple things that could be done that haven't been done. And I don't know why free market prices weren't sufficient to have it done, but if it's going to be done by regulation, it's probably going to be something like that rather than saying Texas has to join the Eastern interconnection or Texas has to have 40% excess capacity, which again, those seem very expensive to me uh, and, and unlikely to be cost effective relative to the damages. But the little things I just talked about, uh, unless I'm missing something, those seem sort of, you know, Tim the Toolman Taylor sensible uh, kind of, you know, solutions. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. 
Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.